every spiritual system needs to have a certain set or singular axiom like an axis that it swivels around. There has to be a point of centrality which grounds that the practice. And you have to be able to, when you're practicing a spiritual life, you probably have to be aware of what's the cornerstone of your practice. Because if you merely land up doing something which is detail after detail, ritual after ritual, and you see them as details and rituals, so then your performance of these practices will ultimately become relegated to meaningless robotic fulfillment because there's nothing which really energizes. Everything is, is almost, there's a, there's, listen to this. I don't know if any of you have eaten a pomegranate in your life. If you have, make sure you're not wearing a white shirt. <laughs> Well, unless, of course, you like white and red shirts. Then you should make sure you're wearing a white shirt. Pomegranate seeds generally are very, um, very, very juicy. And they've got this beautiful red juice, but they're also very tricky to manipulate. So in the course of eating a pomegranate, what's most likely going to occur is you are going to be able to get some spillage all over the front of your of your shirt. So if you like that, good. If you don't. But the interesting thing about pomegranates is the presentation of the fruits. It's quite unique. Very few fruits, the juiciest part is the seed itself. And the difference that this makes with the pomegranate, if for example, you partake it, partaking of an apple. So the flesh of the fruit is consistent and you can bite into it and it's a big circle of fleshiness that you can pierce with your teeth and enjoy. The seeds are in, in, in the middle. A pomegranate, the eating experience is installed seed by seed. Just pointing it out. There's a Gemara which says the following thing. The Gemara says that it's based on a verse in, in the Song of Songs. And the, the Gemara says that the empty people who are involved in Judaism, Reikonim Shebechah, ones who are empty, are filled up with mitzvahs like a pomegranate. Interesting comparison. Why like a pomegranate? And why are they called empty if they're full with mitzvahs? And mitzvahs are those channels of spiritual connection, and they are so full. So you could say, they, they've got lots of them. Just like pomegranate has got lots of seeds. So people who are empty have got lots of mitzvahs, and it's saying even the empty ones are full. But that, I believe, is rather, rather a stretch. And what would the meaning be that if, they, if they're full, so then why are they being called empty? So here's a new understanding for us, which I learned. People who are empty could be full, but the nature of the things that they fill their life up with are a series of disconnected practices and details which don't have an overriding theme which strings, strings them together and makes sense of what they're doing. They don't recognize how each and every practice embodies 
the message and the mission. So they're empty. They're empty because they're doing this and then they're doing that and then they're doing something else. And there's no interconnecting energy. There's no glue that sticks them together. So they're empty. In other words, an empty life can be completely full. An empty life can be full with lots and lots of good stuff. But when there's no driver, there's no meaning, there's no context, there's no understanding of how all the stuff fits into a bigger picture, so then we're empty. We're empty. In other words, that self-introspective quest for spiritual fulfillment, and of course, as a byproduct, a happy and contented life, requires the questioning to undercover or uncover the deep meaning behind what I'm doing. But if my actions form no context and no connection, so they remain meaningless pebbles strewn across the beach of my life, being washed by the sea and the currents of events around me, and having no destination but to be tossed about by the waters of the ocean. Not good. Not good. So we need to unify. We need to unify. We need to create a way of recognizing that all the details are manifestations of a higher vision. Difference would be like this. Give you an example from the world of the world of, of marketing. In marketing, what I would like to do if I want to sell my product is I don't want to sell a product because products have an expiry date and they have a, I, want to, I want to sell an idea and the product becomes a manifestation of that idea. So think about, you know, you can pick your own particular favorite commercial but the commercial will always try to not sell you the item, but the sense above the item. Uh, the item. You know, so I think one of the most powerful advertising um, campaigns consistently throughout for decades and decades has been Coca-Cola. Coke's advertising is, is I would venture to, say, venture to say, unparalleled. And the things that Coke say have actually got nothing to do with a carbonated combination of water and food coloring. If they would have advertised it as, drink this combination of black food coloring with sugar and caffeine, not so much buy-in. But when you say something like, Coke adds life, so then you're telling me, you want to make your life richer, more vital, Coke will do it for you. Coke's not a detail. Coke's a manifestation of an added, a life which has got more to it. What does Coke is real mean? It means that, oh, if you want to touch something which is a real experience, touch Coke. It's never about Coke. Coke's the handle to get a deep experience. Now, we can argue if that's true or not. And I'm not referring to Coke. I'm referring to Coke. Um... If I'd be referring to Coke, then we at least have a discussion about it. But when I'm referring to Coke, so then I think it's pretty categorical that I ain't giving you any kind of experience whatsoever other than the one in your imagination. But of course, that's, uh, that could be the other, I don't know. Um, 
Are you following me? Are you following me? So in other words, we have to string it all together. And if you don't have that string, how many people, this is a fascinating point, how many people who are on the fringes of Jewish practice specifically, I don't know about other religions, but people who are on the outskirts of Jewish practice get an outsider's view of the practices of Judaism and become disillusioned on the spot. And I don't blame them. Because if you're not seeing what's going on behind the scenes, and all you're seeing is practice after practice, it seems laborious, it seems meaningless, it seems inconsequential, and why would I inconvenience my life with practice after practice after practice, which is just another ritual attached to another ritual, and I'm not really sure about the source of of these rituals, so a person steps into a synagogue and he thinks, oh, you look at the people and say, these guys seem to have been here a long time. I'm glad I'm late. And then they're doing these things, and they're bowing at certain times, and they're reciting certain verses, and they, they're covered over with something which looks like a blanket, but it could be a towel, but, but then it's got strings attached. And the person looking at them thinks, I don't want a life with strings attached. I really don't. So, so they look at it, and they look at this prayer shawl. Oh, it's a prayer shawl. Okay, I mean, like, oh, you need a, you need a shawl to pray. Why, like, is, is, praying like something that makes you cold. <laughs> oh, that's why it is. I know I have to pray with a prayer shawl. You know, normally you wear a shawl because you know, things are getting a little bit chilly. So obviously, shawls are cold. So you always need a prayer shawl. So I've been in these shawls and they're, like, they're really hot. It's like, why don't I just take off my prayer shawl? And then you look at them and you say, well, you know, it's actually interesting because I noticed underneath the prayer shawl, they're wearing phylacteries. Phylacteries. So phylacteries is one of those great Greek words which comes up all the time. You know, you can, you can speak to people and say, so tell me, sir, how are your phylacteries going? Um, now, if you say it to the wrong person, they, they may hit you. Um, but uh, phylacteries, or we say tefillin, tefillin. We use, the, we use the, the Aramaic word. Tefillin is an Aramaic word. Um, film, that's the way you say it if you say it properly. Film! And so you look at them and you say, well, you know, so they've got the prayer shawl on. They've got the prayer shawl because obviously... Praying makes you cold. They've got the prayer shawl on, and then they're wearing phylacteries. Boom! And you think to them, oh, well, that's, that, 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 that can make sense. You know, of course, it makes total sense that you should tie a two leather boxes, one upon your bicep and the other upon the place where your fontanelle once pulsed as a small child. They, they, I get that. And that, that, that. That makes sense. No, it doesn't. It just seems like some kind of archaic ritual or superstition, why would you do it? So in other words, understanding, understanding the driver behind the practice will either provide us with a meaningful engagement and the lack thereof will deprive us of, will be empty. An empty or full life actually goes back to understanding the axioms the, the axis upon which it's all turning. And without that, you can do all the stuff. You can do all the stuff. But you'll never be doing anything which is full. It will always be empty. It will always be empty. There's been a massive movement in modern industry for companies to adopt mission statements. But why is that? Why would, you, why would your company have a mission statement? Well, that's exactly why. Because if the mission statement of my company says... 
the customer always comes first. So then I know what I'm doing. And when I say hello to the customer, I say, oh, I'm putting him first. And when I say, I'll give you a cash refund, I know I'm putting him first. And every action I do can relate to an expression of their mission statement. So then I have a direction. I have a goal. I know where I'm going. If I'm just working in a shop and I'm not aware of the mission statement, so then every new situation is a randomly disconnected new situation and I don't have a mode of approach. So, if you'd ask me, if you'd come to me and say, okay, so what, what is it? What is it? Ultimate, deepest, most meaningful message of Judaism, which underneath that principle, all the other spiritual practices fall. So I say, okay. There's one climactic verse in the entire Chumash that deeply declares the notion of monotheism and the fact that there's a spiritual energy behind everything we do, everything we think, everything we speak, every interaction that we have, and that is the governing principle of all of Judaism. And if you'd come to me and say, tell me what Judaism is about, just give me the mission statement. I don't need you to know anything else. So I say to you, these are the words. There's six of them. Shema Israel, Listen, Israel. Hashem Elokeinu. Hashem, this power that brings everything into being, Elokeinu, is intimately connected with your history and with your present and with your future. He is our God. Hashem, that same power, Echad, is the oneness of the universe, the unity, the unifying energy of everything. And that's our mission and that's our statement. And I would be wrong. And I would be wrong. Because it actually happened. It happened historically. A man came over, came over to the greatest sage of the time. And his name was Hillel. And he said to him, tell me. I see all this myriad of mitzvot. What's the, teach me the Torah while I stand on one foot. Meaning, tell me what is, what's behind it all. What are we doing over here? Where are we going with this? So I would say, whispering to Hillel's ear, tell him about the Shema. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wasn't, I wasn't there. So Hillel got it wrong. Ha ha. <laughs> Joke. I got it wrong. Hillel got it right. <laughs> Hillel says to him, the most unexpected reply. The most unexpected reply. Hillel says to him, what's hateful to you, don't do to your friend. I don't know how that helped you because I said it in Aramaic. It makes me feel better. Huh. I just said that in Aramaic. <laughs> I'm wise. What's hateful to you, don't do to other people. That's, that's, that, that, that's, that's the thing that we do with every one of our spiritual practices. When we put in on the talus and we put in our film and when we shuckle back and forth and when we Shabbat and it's all because what's hateful to you, don't do to others. Which seemingly is the opposite of the Haftalachomoka, you should love your fellow as you love yourself. Really? That's the underlying principle? That's extremely, extremely surprising. I would say Shma Israel, Shem Shem Chod. Shma, Shma is the is the big thing. It doesn't make sense that that is the underlying that that, that no? It doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me. And that's already, really bewildering. So I think we need to understand that. 
And it's, it's also very strange because I would understand that the axiom of a spiritual system would be a spiritual axiom, not a social one. And seemingly, after Echomoka, loving your fellow as yourself is a principle of social coherence. It doesn't seem something which is specifically located in the annals of religious doctrine. That means in the, the books of Judaism. Out there for you. You with me? Like, uh, if you want to tell me about a spiritual system, tell me about how to be closer to the Creator, the unifying force. But don't say to me, oh, this is how you embody the ultimate spirituality. When someone walks into the room, you say, hey, would you like a glass of water? Can I get you a seat? That's the ultimate description of spirituality. And that explains to me when I'm putting on tefillin and when I'm putting on my talis and when I'm keeping Shabbat, explains to me what I'm doing. That's my driver. That's my vision. Makes no sense. You get it? You get how it makes no sense? So were you to be awake and alive and engaged now, would you get it? If you could somehow with your body language convey a sense of, I got that, would you be able to do that? Are, are you with me? This is, this is, this is bewildering. So I want to I want to give you an answer to this question, which will absolutely transform your. Oh, look look at that happening in real time. (laughs) Spiritual generation. So so I want to give you an answer, which will completely and totally shift your entire paradigm of what we're trying to do here. And what spiritual practice in the light of Judaism is all about. And this is the answer. So we don't have time for the answer today. Um, Uh, So maybe maybe think about it. And maybe by tomorrow we should be able to... um, Maybe not. But that's, that's a powerful question. That's a very powerful question. That's a part, I, I like that question. That's the kind of question which I'm, I think is worth nurturing, watering, sustaining. I want to thank you all for your, what I'd say, um, fairly decent attention, being complimentary. And, you know, if you, do, if you do want to come back tomorrow, you can. Happens at the same time, same place. And... Um, you know, otherwise you could you could kind of just go on not understanding what you're doing and living with the unanswered question and just being okay with that. Finding, you know, that your spiritual practice is a sense of misaligned, random, erratic practices. That's also okay. That's also, that's okay. Bye. <laughs>